Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it quick and easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. If you need a website or you want to make your existing website better, you need to know about Squarespace immediately. It's an amazing service. Squarespace offers a beautiful array of customizable designs. There are over 20 templates to choose from and a multitude of style options available so you can make your website look how you want it to look. Your site will be unique. Best of all, Squarespace is wonderfully easy to use. Fast, simple, clear, etc. But if for some reason you need assistance, you need a little help, you're confused, Squarespace has a world-class support team available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And remember, people, uh, the customer care team at Squarespace, they work out of an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. The people who work in the Care Bear Lair uh, will be helping you with your questions. Packages start at just 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience. It will match the overall style of your website, so your content is always going to look the same uh, on every device, every single time. So come on, folks, do this. Start a trial right now. Uh, no credit card required. Start building your website. Just visit squarespace.com. And when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code OTHER8. Once again, that offer code is OTHER8. You do that, you get 10% off, and it's a great way to show your support for this program. Let's do this, you guys. Squarespace.com, check it out. It's a terrific deal, available now, uh, and it's an excellent way to improve or build a web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. Go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is available around the world. This is created under the influence of low-grade over-the-counter amphetamines. Thank you for being here. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting in a chair in Los Angeles. Los Angeles? <laughs> 
Beth Lissick is the guest today. She's got a new book coming out from City Lights Publishers later this month. It's called Yokohama Three-Way and Other Small Shames. It's due out on September 24th, and you can pre-order it right now. Beth is a, a very funny woman and a wonderful writer uh, who recently had some gastrointestinal issues, and I'm going to be talking with her in just a moment. But uh, before we get there, uh, let's hear from a listener, shall we? Here we go. Hey, Brad. So, have you ever seen the show Felicity? No, I've never seen the show Felicity, but I am aware of it. I'm aware of uh, Carrie Russell. Is that her name? I'm aware of the show. I remember it, and I, I know the face of the uh, young woman who played Felicity, but that's it. Otherwise, I have uh, no idea what you're talking about. Okay, well, in in the beginning of every episode, this, like, girl becoming woman, Felicity, she, like, records this sort of life update, philosophical musing on an audio cassette, a, a cassette tape, yeah, it's kind of old, but she, she records this life update and sends it to her transcontinental pen pal. I don't know if she's ever named or anything, or if the viewer even sees her, but anyway, she sends this life update to her transcontinental pen pal. This sounds awful. This, uh, <laughs> sounds like I would hate this show. Am I, am I being too judgmental here? Like what? The, the, this girl's just talking into a tape recorder every episode? That would be like filming me doing this podcast. <laughs> It'd be horrible. Um, and as soon as I heard your request for voicemails, I, I kind of realized that I'd always had this like felicity fantasy. You know, I realized that I wanted a transcontinental pen pal. All right. Uh, okay. I get it. I am now your transcontinental uh, pen pal via voicemail. And your felicity. <laughs> is that what this is about? You have a felicity fantasy? I, you know, this is weird. So, uh, like Felicity, I also live in New York City, where I support myself um, just barely uh, by working as a bookseller, which is a lot less glamorous than it would seem, especially at this time of year, when I just interact with undergrads buying books who are simultaneously so innocent and so disgusting. What's, uh, what's, like, what's so disgusting about an undergrad? Like inherently disgusting? <laughs> that seems harsh. Just because they're in college? What, like what, they're 18? I don't know. But anyway, um, the other day, one of my customers was purchasing Ben Learners, leaving the top dress station. I think that's how you say it. And, you know, as I was ringing him up, I said, I told him that I had really enjoyed the book. And he asked me if I had thought that it was a funny book and I thought about it my immediate reaction was yeah of course it's funny um, but then as I started thinking a little more deeply uh, I realized I didn't know how to articulate you know the humor in that book I just wasn't sure um, 
if it was actually funny or if only I found it funny or I just started thinking about humor and you know obviously this is something okay yeah I mean I get this uh, leaving the Atocha station is in my opinion uh, a great book and a, and a funny book extremely well written extremely uh, intelligent cerebral humor it's also a depressive stew of uh, hyper self-aware self-loathing mixed with uh, like international terrorism and uh, horribly cruel and inept social and romantic behavior <laughs> something like that but you know just in general my my question to you is what books do you find exceptionally funny and why you know this <clears throat> this is a good question i i think leaving the atocha station is a fairly recent example of a book that i found funny and uh, I also thought that This Town, uh, the book by Mark Leibovich, who was my guest in uh, episode 204, I thought that book was very funny. But, uh, you know, the truth is that I rarely, rarely laugh out loud when I'm reading. Almost never. Because, you know, most books aren't funny. If an author's actually able to make me laugh out loud... Uh, then there's very there's a very good chance uh, that I'm going to really enjoy that author and will latch on. It's pretty much guaranteed. So, uh, to give an example, Gore Vidal, uh, one of my favorite writers for precisely this reason, which I've uh, I've mentioned before. Like to me, uh, he's uh, like the ultimate bitchy genius in his essays. In his fiction, uh, not as much, but uh, he's funny with a mean streak, both in writing as he was in person. Like At his best, genuinely like, hilarious and uh, just biting humor. And uh, he's wonderful company on the page, and I think you just, you know, for me anyway, uh, you walk away from his books uh, or his essays wishing that you had a friend like that. And praying that you never have an enemy like that. <laughs> it's not who you wanted as an enemy so uh, another book that really made me laugh uh, was Journey to the End of the Night by Louis Ferdinand Celine is that odd? Like, it's a really dark book but it made me laugh and I think it's a great book like a great great novel as is Death on the Installment Plan which is another uh, novel of Celine's I like my humor dark and uh, I feel like both of these books would qualify as angry masterpieces. So maybe I like angry dark humor. You know, like as I like to say, I, I like to wince while laughing. I don't want to just laugh. I want to wince at the same time. And I like writing that feels like it was written uh, at wit's end. Like, I, I think this is a state of mind that produces some of the funniest writing. Like when somebody is just so frustrated uh, with themselves or with their uh, pain and suffering or with bullshit of one kind or another uh, in life, in uh, politics, in the workplace, whatever it is. And uh, the truth at the end of the day is that it's really hard to do. It's hard to be funny in writing. It's hard for me to find books that I think are, are seriously funny. It rarely happens, if I'm being honest. 
Um, Vonnegut made me laugh as a kid. Bukowski, I think, can be very funny. Laurie Moore can be really funny uh, and is great with wordplay. But a lot of times, <clears throat> if I'm in a bookstore and I pick up a book and the jacket is uh, decorated with blurbs claiming that this essay collection is laugh out loud funny and it will cause you to burst a blood vessel uh, or whatever, you know, I'll buy it and I'll read it and uh, I'm almost always completely underwhelmed. Like maybe my expectations are too high. You know, and it sort of begs the question, who out there is really laughing out loud while they read? And I mean like seriously losing their shit and uh, crying from laughing so hard. Does that actually happen? Because if it does, uh, that seems scary to me. <laughs> I feel like people who do that might be unhinged. And uh, if I see someone doing that, I will uh, move away from them. Like if I laugh out loud while I'm reading, at most you're going to get a very uh, soft chuckle from me. Or, or sometimes I'll even say the word ha out loud. Or, or I'll simply say, that's funny. I'll actually say that. <laughs> but most of the time I'm just silent. I'm laughing silently to myself. So uh, if the point is that if I make a noise, then you've really done something. Like, I tend to think that when a writer is funny, or when I find a writer funny, it's usually because he or she uh, is saying something deeply true that is almost always left unsaid. Something impolite, something downright rude, something embarrassing. Or they're, or they're clarifying something that's often left poorly said. Or they're revealing a big hypocrisy or savaging some kind of monster. Uh, which is to say, it's usually not uh, like joke writing that makes me laugh. Though that did make me laugh more when I was a kid. What makes me laugh now is is uh, dark truth. I don't know, it's situational. It's like I, I love a, a good, deft internal monologue or observation or some kind of confession. It's like things along those lines. So uh, here's a little bit more from Felicity. Then we'll get started. <sighs> I ate beets for dinner. They were delicious. They tasted like earth. Wait, what? Did she say beets? You're eating beets for dinner? Like, like just beets? Um, this guy I used to see, he was supposed to come visit me last weekend, and he canceled for reasons that were ambiguous and left uh, very open um, oh and the last book I read I would highly recommend to you Carl Ove Nausgaard's My Struggle Volumes 1 and 2 you would dig this book okay thanks okay uh, thank you Felicity I appreciate it as for uh, Carl Ove Nausgaard that's a shrewd recommendation because uh, I have been dancing around that book for a while suspecting that I will like it I've even, I've read some excerpts and, uh, I love the title. I've actually talked about that title before on this program. I was, uh, I was making a joke, I think about how every book and really every uh, piece of art ever made could easily be called 
My Struggle, which of course was the title of Adolf Hitler's memoir. (laughs) So when I was talking about it in past episodes, or in a past episode, I was troubled by the fact that Hitler had stolen a great title and had sort of uh, ruined it in the process, much as he ruined that little mustache, which remains out of fashion to this day. Uh, But as for uh, my struggle, Mein Kampf in German, maybe uh, Karl of Nosgaard is helping to uh, change things. Maybe he's taking it back, wresting it from the evil dead hands of Adolf Hitler uh, so that the rest of us can use it without feeling like Nazis. So thanks again to Felicity. Uh, If you're out there and you're listening and you would like to leave me a voicemail message, you can do so over at the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com. Just click on send voicemail over on the right side of the page. Uh, Remember to speak up. And remember, don't use voicemail to make recommendations about who I should have on the show. And don't use it to just say uh, hello. Ask me a question. Tell a story. uh, Make it personal or emotional. You have 90 seconds. That's the limit for messages. So please do that. I like hearing from you guys. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Beth Lissick, kind of a perfect guest, considering the content of today's uh, message and monologue. She's a genuinely funny writer. Uh, who often works from the kind of pathos that I was just talking about. Her new collection, Yokohama Three-Way and Other Small Shames, will be published by City Lights on September 24th. You can pre-order it right this very moment. I'm very ha- uh, very happy to have Beth here on the program, and I think you're going to like hearing from her. So uh, let's get going, shall we? Here she is, folks. This is Beth Lissick, and her new book, once again, is called Yokohama Three-Way, and other small shames. Right now, I'm sitting in a room known as The Vault um, at my literary agency because I have a nice landline. And The Vault, they just told me, I didn't even know this room was here, and it used to be a furrier, and this is where they kept the expensive fur coats. But now it just has a bunch of books in it and one of those balls that you sit on um, instead of a real chair. Okay, but you don't like smell like remnants of fur. From days no, ago. no. I think I think it's the books have been here for a while. The books have taken over. They have, and there's actually maybe maybe there's a similarity between like old books and 
old animal skins. You know, yeah, something, something's worth a lot of money and something's not worth a lot of money. <laughs> so, okay, and so that we should say, too, that like there's been uh, some logistical hurdles that we've had to get through in order to be able to do this interview uh like just that's right cell phone cell phone related uh static and then you had a uh an issue medically <laughs> I, I had some some stomach sadness after coming back from from mexico but the weird thing is is that i've been having it for a while like my something in my guts isn't good and so now i'm 44 and i'm gonna get my first colonoscopy soon oh so congratulate God. me on that yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a banner day i've got it on my calendar i'm very i mean i'm actually kind of excited to know like what's going on in there what does it look like so um, yeah, too bad this interview is before that, not afterwards. So I could tell everybody all about it. We could we could spend the full hour on that. I mean, mm-hmm. So, and uh, not to spend too much time there, but do you do you have to be uh, uh, anesthetized to do a colonoscopy? Like, are you out? I guess you you can either do out or twilight. And I don't, you know, I actually have to meet with the doctor one more time before I go, so I didn't I didn't ask. But I don't know which one I want to do. I mean, it kind of. I, I don't know. I've never, I've wait. never had that done before. So it seems like wait, wait, it's kind of scary to go totally out, but then it's kind of scary to be kind of there too for it. You I was going to say, like, what does Twilight mean? <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, that's I guess what they used to do in um, pregnancy, like in birthing situations. You know, my mom um, gave birth to my brother in some kind of weird Twilight situation, and uh, my brother uh, was born with a bunch of disabilities and so i think they they i don't think they do that so much anymore um i don't in but anyway um what would you what would you do i i don't know i think like maybe i I, i'm one of those people who is very leery of the full out like for anything you know like i Mm -hmm. I think i'd prefer to be like half there but Mm -hmm, because at least you could say like ow (laughs) you need to give me more or you know something i don't know my my fear is like if you went totally out that you would wake up in the middle of it, you know, and they wouldn't know that you're awake. And then like on those doctor shows where they're always making fun of you or, or <laughs> saying something to, or, or they're, they're just feels like they're not even paying attention at all. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I, I had surgery earlier this year and I had to go fully out and it was like a minor, <laughs> it was a minor surgery, but it was still, mm-hmm. it still rattles me a little bit, you know, just that. And when you're going out, do you like, do you remember Like what was the feeling like right before you're, you're totally blacked out well this is the thing when i think in most if not all surgery situations where you actually go fully out they give you a uh anxiety medication Uh. before they even put you out so first i was like doped up on that so that's sort of the trick because anybody who's going in there and a doctor friend of mine a buddy of mine is a neurologist and he was telling Mm -hmm. me this so they basically give you a xanax like a high-powered xanax through an iv um, before you even, you know, before you even get into the, uh, the anesthesia po- portion of the, the process. So by the time you uh, get there, you're just, I hope I get that. Yeah. And you, by the time, yeah. you're, by, the, by the time you get there, you're just sort of lying there and then you're looking up at the anesthesiologist and then like the next thing you know, you're waking up. That's usually the- so weird. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So we have, you know, I, I wish you well with that. Uh, Thank and, you. And then uh, because I'm 38, like what age do I have to start doing that? <laughs> do you know? Well, I think they say 50 because I actually just 
this is my year of uh, colonoscopies because I just picked up my friend from his colonoscopy appointment uh, about a month ago because they tell they say to have somebody there to to get you home because of being under and stuff. So we're in New York, so we're on the subway together. <laughs> He's fifty, and that was his first one. Wow. Okay. So I have a little yeah. bit of time. So you gotta you gotta wait as long as everything's going well. Yeah, you got some time. All right, I'm knocking on wood. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then Mexico. What were you doing down in Mexico? Was this like just vacation? No, it was, it, it was, it turned into vacation later, but for the first part of it, um, Michelle T, the writer Michelle T has this great, it's the first, I think the only queer writers retreat, free queer writers retreat in the entire world. And, um, they've been doing it for six years, seven years, I think in Akumal, Mexico, which is in the Yucatan Peninsula. And, um, I had gone, I went, went once a couple of years ago and I went again, this year and it's just 10 days of writing and having somebody cook beautiful food for you and snorkeling in this incredible location where there's it's a turtle sanctuary so you're seeing baby turtles be born on the beach and oh it was really it was really fantastic and then uh my husband and son came afterwards and and we spent a week there as like a family vacation which we never never do that so that was really nice awesome okay so <clears throat> you said it's it's free totally free. You have to pay, pay for your plane ticket there. Okay. But once you get there, it's your, you stay in these really nice, you know, places and, uh, right on the beach and then they cook for you. So, you know, you can spend money if you want to go do, um, you know, touristy things or whatever, but, but if you're just going to sit there and write, you don't have to spend a dime. How does that work? They do fun, major fundraising and they also, um, have, I think the condos they get at a, a really discounted rate because it's somebody, it's a queer mafia in San Francisco. You know, they've got like their people and they're like, you're going to do something cool with our vacation condos. You know, you can have it for this special rate. Um, so, and then, I mean, it really is, it, it's fundraising is, is how they do it. Okay. And then uh, the word queer and, and the fact that it's a queer writing retreat and then the fact that your husband and son came down, like, how does that all fit together? Well, oh, my husband could have been a woman at one time, but he's not. But they, I have been, so Michelle started this thing called Sister Spit in, um, with Finney Anderson in San Francisco in the 90s, mid 90s. Okay. And Sister Spit was just an open mic uh, night that was all when it started it was all women mostly dykes uh you know gay guys would come sometimes but for whatever reason i fell in those were my people even though i was straight i had tried to you know not be straight for a while but then it just didn't didn't stick and so um I, uh, that, those were just who my, my friends were and my, my comrades. And so I just kind of, you know, we would go on these big summer tours, 30, 40 cities, and, you know, in these shitty vans, drive across the country. Um, and it was mostly people doing, you know, people doing poetry. Um, there was some fiction. It was a lot of, um, you know, it was very rowdy. Uh, there were some circus performers, like trapeze artists that came with us sometimes. And, um, so that was sister spit. And then that disbanded sometime, maybe after about five years, they stopped doing the tours and the open mics and then Michelle started it back up again a few years ago. So I went on a, another, you know, month long tour with them two years ago and I'm going to go on tour with them again in the spring. And it's funny because it used to be 
you know, lesbian bars, women's spaces, queer bookstores, um, and and now everybody has kind of moved on and published and done things. And so now we go on these tours and it's universities and we do, you know, these great shows and clubs and nightclubs and, and it's, it's so cool to just see how everybody's work has changed. And, and, and then also Michelle brings along a lot of younger people. So it's cool. It's like there's people in their twenties and there's people in their forties. Oh, wow. Okay. And yeah. And I mean, pretty soon you guys, I mean, you've gone from vans pretty soon. You'll have a tour bus, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, at least now, you know, we have vans, but they're like rental vans that like the kind that bands take on tour that are like, you know, you have a charger to charge your phone and stuff. And if anything goes wrong with it, you can get another van from the company and, right. and all these things that we, we never had back, back then. Okay. And, and um, and I don't want to, maybe this is like not something that needs to even be discussed, but like the word queer, like fascinating. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So because, you know, you be, because like precisely because like I feel uncomfortable using it. Like I would never be like, this is my queer friend. Yeah, no, no. It's funny. Cause I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it either unless I had been hanging out with people who call themselves that and include me in that world. And I don't, I don't call myself queer, but it, but I do say like, Oh, I'm, you know, this, what is this writing retreat? It's well, it's a queer, queer centric, you know, writing retreat. But I think it, you know, it just was sort of, it kind of re- replace the lgbtq sort of thing and i think that all the all the uh yeah all the all the kind of you know gay identified other identified people that i know use that as as kind of the word now to describe themselves if they're talking about identity politics or something yeah it's simpler it's like and it's fascinating because i think about like descriptors you know it'd be like i guess gay is the one that that i would use but it's like I'm not going to be like this is my homosexual friend. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And and even back then, like like dykes, that, that was like they called themselves dykes. Like that way, it was kind of a tough punk rock, you know. And my friends don't call themselves dykes anymore. Though my mother-in-law, who is a lesbian, calls her like you know some of her friends dykes. She'll use that word. Yeah, I guess, and, and I'm just going to stick with gay. Like I don't feel like I yeah. can, I feel like I don't have permission to use that word, sort of. You know? like yeah, watch it. People are going to get really mad. Well, I guess you never know, right? I heard your whole lovely and talented thing, and I was like, geez, if you, I would be flattered if you described me as, as lovely and talented. That would be very nice. Yeah, I know. That's I mean, that's kind of where my head was at when I was doing it. But then you hear people yeah. arguing that they don't want to think about a, a, a woman's looks when they're considering her. Right. Work. Well, you get so much feedback, right? People are always, you know know emailing you and calling you on stuff and i mean it's it's nice because people are listening right yeah it is and and you know they're also like i think writerly people have a tendency to like intellectualize and to be cerebral and to like really like drill down into like word choice and you know oh uh, so. you I, i'm not into it yeah it's you know so it gets it gets dicey i feel yeah i feel sometimes when i'm talking like uh like i can like sometimes when I'm doing interviews or I'm doing a monologue, I can feel people judging me. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what's funny? It's sometimes that happens when I've I've been writing, and I'll I'll be because I had a couple experiences with editors who, um, just one particularly, but it really when I went on to do other books. I would be like answering her in my brain while I was writing, going, "Oh, yeah, this you're going to say this about this," and well, you know, and 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 I think that's it's that's a you know, it's terrible to write from like a defensive or speak from a kind of pre-defensive position. Yeah. you got um, it's just, I mean, I think that's like the, I mean, that's a problem creatively period for me. Like, I mean, writing 
a book and like anticipating critiques before you've even gotten it. That's not a good, that's not a good thing. That's to do. right. It's a bad place to be. Um, so where are you from? Are you from uh, the Bay area? Yeah, I grew up in San Jose, um, a, a town next to San Jose called Saratoga. It's just like a, you know, now it's a very kind of affluent suburb, but at the time it was just sort of, you know, we had the station wagon and the house across the street from us looked exactly like our house, you know, kind of tract house sort of thing. And, um, yeah, I grew up there. My parents still live in that house. Um, and then when I was, I was 18, I went to school at UC Santa Cruz and then, uh, moved to San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco, you know, just, I've been in the Bay area my entire life until, until last year when I moved to, uh, to Brooklyn. Okay. So, and, and you said, what did, what did you, what's the name of the town? Saratoga? That you Saratoga. Up? Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and that has been sort of co-opted by like Silicon Valley. It's now become, is that part of that it's, whole universe? It's so crazy. Like, yeah, it's really funny to see my parents now who are in their seventies and, um, you know, they live, like I said, in this, in, it's a, you know, tract house, but it's like the good, you know, the good school district. And, um, and even like the, the, in San Jose itself, like those houses are going for a million dollars, like these, you know, little tiny houses are a million dollars. And, um, your parents, yeah, your it's parents a weird, probably, your parents probably bought it for like $50,000. <laughs> yeah, I know they did. They bought it for, I think they bought it for 75 or something like that. And, um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's it's very strange. I'm I'm writing a novel right now, and I'm using this this whole that whole area because it's so it has changed so much, and um and it's still very interesting, I think, because there are so many immigrants who came there. You know that that San Jose is like Mexican and Vietnamese, you know, and Cambodian, and there's a lot of Middle Eastern people up near Fremont and the peninsula. And so it's, it's a trip. Like, and, and the, I mean, my parents are definitely, you know, like some of the few, uh, older white people that are on their, you know, in their neighborhood now. Like, it's just totally, it's, it's totally fascinating. And, um, so there's like the immigrant population from the, you know, fifties, I mean, before, you know, Mexicans there originally, but then it's like fifties, sixties, seventies. And there was a big Cambodian influx in the seventies. And then, uh, now with the tech workers, it's like a whole other, you know, just like, yeah, the, the, the young rich kids all want to live in San Francisco. So that's where most of, most of them are, are in the mission and my old neighborhood there. And then what about, and your parents are uh, technology people? Are they artists? Like how did- no, 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 no. My parents, I, I heard you say uh, on one of your podcasts that you did, you grew up without a stereo in your house. And um, we had a stereo, but my parents had three eight-track tapes. They had, um, they had Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. They had um, a, a live John Denver album and a live um, uh, Neil Diamond record. Oh, and then they had the soundtrack to Hair. And that was, that was, they, I mean, we just, my parents moved to California in the 60s from the Midwest, from Illinois. And it really was, that was the wildest thing that they ever did in their lives. Like they didn't move out. They had no idea about hippies. They, they moved to this suburb and they had their three kids. My dad was uh, uh, in the aerospace uh, industry. So he worked for Lockheed Missiles in Space as an engineer. My mom was a tutor for kids with learning disabilities and they just, that was it. I mean, they're still in that house. They, um, they go to like a speaker series, you know, so they'll hear like 
Bill Clinton, you know, speak or they go to the um, symphony sometimes. But it's really funny that I just grew up with no concept of that you could be uh, an artist or a writer or there was there was nothing groovy except for my babysitter you know she was like super <laughs> super cool you know but that was the only uh only inkling i had that you could be some kind of like alternative person that wasn't just like and we got married and we had our kids and we go to work every day well, you know, and we have dinner at six o'clock every night you know yeah. well isn't it interesting like i think about my parents who are from the from louisiana that's where they grew up and mm -hmm. uh you know for the most part they were they i mean they went to college in the late 60s to early 70s or the mid 60s to early 70s and uh mm -hmm. They were completely insulated from all counterculture. They had, that was no part of their experience at all. And I guess, yeah. you know, you, you, I think that when we look at like media or we look at, you know, archival tapes or movies or what often gets played, you know, on television or whatever, we think that the whole country was enthralled to that particular movement or whatever. And the truth of, of the matter is that there were huge swaths of the country that, um, had really nothing to do with it. It was like nothing to do with it. It was like these urban pockets and like Berkeley and you know like college campuses. And then I don't know. My parents would go to like f football games. They had to wear like ties. You know, it's a right, right. I know. I mean, but when I say like, oh, my parents moved out to California in '67. You know, summer of love. Like you would think, you know, but yeah, absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, and and sport, yeah, sports, baseball. They watch sports on TV. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you, you, you know, I, I think we under, I think we're from maybe similar worlds in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and then, so okay, so how did you? I mean, you must have been uh, kind of the odd child. It was you, and then you said you had a brother who's disabled. Yeah, I have two brothers, two older brothers. Um, yeah, my oldest brother has cerebral palsy, and then he also has probably never been diagnosed, but definitely on the autism spectrum. Um, and then my other brother, Chris, is one year older than me, and he lives here in, in Brooklyn. So I I think, you know, my mom, like, had her hands full with three kids, but she wasn't, she just seemed like the most natural mom ever. You know, it did nothing. It's funny being a parent, and I feel like my stresses being a parent are, are very noticeable to my son. <laughs> like, I feel like he can see me struggling sometimes. And with my parents, like they just, they just didn't. And, and my mom says that, uh, I was just telling somebody this yesterday, <clears throat> we were talking about kids and, and like, I used to go, I didn't like to take a nap, but she would put me in my crib though. And she said she would just go back an hour later and I'd just be sitting there. Like, I wouldn't cry. I would just kind of be like, all right, it's time to get out of the crib. Like, and I'm wondering, like, did I really not? Or is that just how she remembers it? Because she had, like, kids, that, you know, all three. We're all three in a row. So we're, like, you know, born in 65, uh, or 66, 67, and 68. So, you know, I mean, yeah. And uh, so that I, I wonder about that sometimes. Like, but I, I had, I was very... Um, a very happy kid, you know, just very um, chill and 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 my whole uh, childhood and adolescence. I, I was just very. It wasn't until I started writing that I started getting neurotic. That'll, that'll mess you up, you know. Yeah, and I lasted for so long. You know, I didn't start writing really until after I was out of college, and then I just, I just, it, it's so weird. It's 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 funny that it was like a latent thing in me that, and I think part of it too was just that I had no role models and so I couldn't really understand like how you how you did that you know who does that well I think that yeah I'm, I'm sort of the same way like I'm, I'm I feel like I'm uh, kind of on my own in that respect and I think that's part of the reason why I do this show I'm like trying to figure it out <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. um, 
but you know you had no inkling like creatively it must have been there in you like in high school and some yeah like well i was a big like i was um like i had two best friends and we uh lived one of them lived one house away from me and the other one lived around the around the corner and so we would do stuff like we didn't i didn't drink in high school um but we would like go to the parties and then we would hide in the closet and spy on people or hide under the beds and like write down, we would all take a different room and like go and observe and like write down what we were, what we saw, who said what dumb, like what drunk person said what, and then we would compare notes with each other. Okay. Okay. Um, wait, I got to stop you because this, <laughs> this is interesting to me. Cause like I did, I did drink in high school. I was one of the idiots that you were taking notes on. <laughs> Uh, but I always like in, 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 uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I always think like, God, like the behavior was so bad and so stupid a lot of the time, like not bad, yeah. not bad, meaning like sinful, but just like goofy and like just dumb. You know? <laughs> yeah. So what was it like to have like, you know, your head screwed on somewhat straight and to be sitting there observing all this? Did you, did you find yourself like appalled by it or were you sort of like, this is interesting? I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. And it also, I think it helped with, it helped because I wasn't comfortable being like they were, that it felt like, oh, well, here's my role. Like I have, I'm doing, I'm doing this thing. And it wasn't, it wasn't mean spirited. You know, we weren't like, like, oh, what a loser. But it, it was just kind of like, whoa, look at what happens to teenagers in their natural, natural habitat no, when they drink a bunch of wine coolers, you, you know? Guys, you guys are like, you guys are like the Jane Goodall of your high school parties. <laughs> I wish we were that cool, but <laughs> it was like, it was, um, so, so that, so I did have like this sort of like, weird a little bit of a weird sense of humor or, or just a weird um i don't know like i i when i was uh, a freshman in high school i was voted homecoming princess and i was i i was so embarrassed like i i i feel like i go through this with writing too where um or just being in public in the world like i get I feel embarrassed to be me a lot of times. And, and I remember that being particularly like, I don't want this, like this feels weird. And, and I just, I didn't want to get a dress for it. And I just held off getting a dress. Like I would, my mom was like, let's go shopping for your special night, you know? And we were going to, we had to, we had to go around the football field in the back of a convertible cabriolet with, with Dave Friedman, the guy, the quarterback for the football team. And so it was me and him, uh, for the freshman class and this thing. And I just didn't, I just was like, no, I, I, I don't want to do it, mom, you know? And, and so this is so great. I can't believe I did this, but she, on the day of, she borrowed a dress from the daughter of somebody she played bridge with who was in her bridge group. And she, <laughs> I mean, it didn't fit me. It was gigantic. Um, I didn't have any shoes. I wore my mom's suntan nylons with shoes that were like two sizes too big for me. I, and, and, you know, I curled my bangs, you know, I did make an effort a, a little bit when it came down to it. I really, you know, I wasn't going to like not do it, but, um, and I think after that, I just kind of, I had a, I had a crush on a senior and, and, um, he asked me out on a date and I, I wrote about this in, um, my book, everybody into the pool. He asked me out on a date and I was so, crazy about him and we went out to dinner and then uh we went back to his house afterwards and he lived with his grandparents and they were asleep 
and we were like making out and I was like, this is the great, this is my first date. This is amazing. I, you know, and, and, uh, and then he just whispered in my ear, suck my dick. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I was just like, what? I, I didn't, you know, I, I, and so I just like pretended to ignore it. And then so I just kind of kept kissing him. And then he was just like, I want you to suck my dick. And and I was just like, oh, man. And I just stopped. And I, he said it like three times. I pretended twice not to hear. Just like, let's just keep making out. This is great, isn't it? Why isn't this great? You know? And uh, <laughs> so incredible. And, uh, it's, and, so, uh, it's, it's so like, it's just so awkward. It's all so awkward. So awkward. Yeah. So awkward. And, um, and so then I made him take me home in his Datsun B210 that had the stick shift, um, had a ski like a ski handle on it like he had taken off the the knob of the stick you can put like a ski thing for ski poles on it sure. and um and yeah and and i was just like after that i was like see what happens you get a little attention and then guys want you to suck their dicks and i was just <laughs> like this is terrible <laughs> so um i think that that was very formative for me for sure like i just kind of you know after that it was you know i shaved my head and i you know and who did all my shopping at thrift stores and, you know, um, but, uh, that, that, that changed me for okay. sure. Okay. Cause like, this is like making me think like I'm mystified and maybe this, maybe this is just a faulty thinking. Maybe this wasn't the case at all, but there, there always seemed to be people that I went to high school with like classmates of mine who, uh, were not self-conscious about, that sort of thing and like weren't horrified or terrified you know it seemed like it was mm -hmm. easier, easier for them like anything like that any kind of like physical intimacy or uh, especially physical intimacy when i was like you know ninth tenth grade uh emotional intimacy like it was all so weird and <laughs> awkward and like was, yeah was, was i mean it just it, me? it, no no i mean because your body's all changing and you just don't know what you know, you don't really, I don't think you really feel in your body, you know, when you're that age, like you have no, and so everything is really awkward and it's really awkward to be with somebody else in their body when they're not really in theirs either, you know, and you're trying to, I mean, I had boyfriends and I make out with my boyfriends a bite, you know, later that year. I mean, I, you know, had a, another boyfriend who I basically did almost everything except for seconds they can have sex with him, but I, but I, so, and I felt like into it, like I liked it, but, um, I just think that like talking about it and, and trying to navigate that weird world of your body when you're that age is just like, it's, you know, it's, it's got, it's just, it's so strange. It is. It's totally strange. <laughs> and just like, I don't know, trying to communicate like at the, I mean, to, to, to somewhat tie it to writing, like at the level of articulation, like trying to express mm -hmm. needs or like, <laughs> right, right. Because you know, then what happened after that, he dropped me off. I never, I never talked to him again. And he was, you know, my brother was friends with his brother. And so it was super awkward. And we would see them at like family gatherings. And my mom would always be like, how come you never went out on another date with Clay? You had it. He, 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 he came over that night and brought me a single red rose and one for my mom. Oh like, my so gross. Oh and uh, and I came home and, like, my mom had put the rose in a vase on my the night table. I mean, so disgusting. <laughs> oh. So, okay. So after that, you, you made, like, a, a fairly significant shift. Like you said, you shaved your head. Yeah, we, it wasn't. It was yeah. It was the next year, I think. Like in school, I remember. I can't remember. Like I didn't do it right after that. But you know, it's like I think from then on, I just kind of realized, like, okay, 
there's these people at my school who are like the popular party people. And, um, and then there's all, like, I just always liked the nerds and the people who ended up being gay. Like that's who my, you know, my friends became and they were, you know, I mean, I just, yeah, I, I kind of just kind of figured out, I think it was more about just figuring out more who I was, you know, and that I had kind of just been, you know, everything I was, I was a good athlete. I was a, you know, on the track team and, and, um, I, I, so I, and I continued to do that. I did sports all the way through high school. Um, but I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it was just more about that. I kind of started figuring out a little bit more who I, who I was and, and who I liked to hang out with. And I still had those, you know, two best friends from my neighborhood. Can I, let me ask you a question. Um, I, I'm interested to I'm interested to know if you think having a having a brother or a sibling with disabilities in any way was formative with respect to how you, uh, I guess, socialized and eventually became. Because I, I mean, I have an uncle uh, who's mentally disabled. And I've thought about this before because I think like it gives you a certain empathy toward, you know, I don't know. I don't want to use the word freaks because I feel like yeah. it might be taken. Yeah. As a, a struggle, struggle. Yeah, yeah, like, like, personal struggles for sure. And, I mean, and, and, and it's like, it's part of your family experience. And like, I, you know, you go out in public at the grocery store with him and he's yeah. like, you know, and it's funny and he's like shouting at everyone and people love him, but it's also like, Oh my God, you know, like it, it adds a layer. And it, I think, I think like if you don't have, <laughs> that level of intimacy or understanding of it, or you haven't dealt with it that way. Maybe you don't have as much, uh, I don't know. Do you know what I'm getting Well, at? yeah, but I mean, different people have different stuff in their life, right? So people have, you know, family members who have, you know, what then, right. You were talking about, I think somebody in your family, your brother's, uh, your, your father's brother or somebody yeah. had been murdered. And, you know, it's like, I just think that like, yeah, having somebody in your family with a disability, a sibling, you know, is, I mean, yeah, everywhere we would go, it would, because he walks very distinctly with a, you know, really big limp and he can't, it's all his left side, you know, so he can't, pick up stuff with his left hand and and um so everywhere we went you would I would I would always notice people noticing him and um and then living with him on a day-to-day basis just his struggles in opening a jar or putting on his pants or learning how to tie his shoes um uh I I I think that I just didn't think about it so much because it's your family and so you're just in it but um my other brother and I were just talking about it recently and we were like, Whoa, that, that was, that was pretty intense. And we, we just, you know, my parents handled it so gracefully and, um, and he went to the same high school with us, which was actually kind of horrible to see how he was treated. Well, I was going um, to ask, yeah. I was going to ask because I know how kids are and, um, you know, we had integrated, uh, we had an integrated school as well where I went to high school where you had mm-hmm. students with disabilities in the same classroom. And um, I think I had maybe like a heightened level of sensitivity to them because of my uncle or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you've been around it. And so it's not totally unfamiliar to you. And and, and uh, so that was horrible. You know, some of that was that was that was definitely like my worst high school, more than the dick sucking request was, <laughs> was, you know, watching these assholes be a dick, like make fun, like walk behind him in his walk. Like, you know, just shit like that. Like it was horrible. Well, no, and you Um, wrote wrote something about that, how like you, you saw somebody doing that and it made your blood boil. But then like at that point, I never said anything. I mean, that's like one of, so this book that I, um, 
just is going to come out in October, I just kind of tried to think of like all the things I could think of in my life that were like big regrets or failures, or I have a couple in there that are just like false pride. And, and, um, and yeah, that's definitely one of them. Like I think about that on an incredibly regular basis, how I never said anything to those guys and it drives me crazy. And so I thought, you know, if I, if I can like, like make a list of all these things in my life that just popped to mind. And I was on a, I was on a flight from San Francisco to New York and I just started listing them and I had like 65 of them by the time I landed, just shit that I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, Oh, you know, or, or really bad ones, you know, like that, that are just kind of like I live with that just makes me feel terrible. And, um, so I just, you know, decided to just to write them out. Okay, and so the kids that were uh, that were teasing your brother were they popular kids or were they just like? Yeah, they were. Yeah, like popular, you know, jocks. Okay, okay. so yeah. this, is, this is what I'm driving at. So, like, when you are elected homecoming princess, and all of a sudden you're like being in, essentially initiated into that world, and the senior, you know, is asking you out on a date and everything. Like, maybe like that had some kind of formative effect on you in terms of your mistrust of that world or yeah i think so it's funny because i've never been uh in therapy or anything and this is like it feels very one writing that book but also two talking to you right now feels very therapeutic i feel like i'm learning about myself <laughs> well, right I, now. i've never been in, I've ne- never been in therapy either i'm just you know i think oh. I, I think that uh, i think that i have a parallel experience so it's maybe it's making me realize things about myself at the same yeah time. yeah but but i mean how could it have not right it, yeah it totally it totally that totally affected me i was just like look at you guys in your world i don't want any part of it you know i'm gonna shave my head and yeah so when you you started to go down that road um like i mean i don't know how visible your rebellion was or like what the aesthetic changes were how severe they were but like did your parents notice was there any tension at home when you started doing that or no like i was because i still like got good grades i did my you know i was doing my sports and i was always like a you know, I, I still would be like I was on the you know school newspaper and the yearbook one year and and did the um uh you know just like I I just was like oh I was like the one of the student body vice president like I did stuff you know that was kind of like I I enjoyed it like the people who did that kind of stuff at my school were like you know nice kids and stuff and and um uh but it was more like there was just this sort of like popular party faction that felt different but my, yeah so i was still you know i didn't rebel i didn't i didn't do anything bad um and and you know i think my mom cried when i shaved <laughs> you know she was just like you know thought i looked horrible i did look horrible but um did you ever see the movie the legend of billy jean <laughs> i don't know why that just popped oh, into my head that's a great movie. no i've never <laughs> seen it it's with Helen Slater. I don't know. It's uh, a, for some reason, I saw it like 50 times when I was a kid, but she shaved her head. And that is... You know what? I think that Helen Slater might have gone to my high school. Well, see, there's something psychic. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. I got to check this out. I got to follow them on this road. You might be Netflixing uh, The Legend of Billie Jean tonight. Yeah. Oh, good. Uh, so, okay. So where'd you go to college? Uh, UC Santa Cruz, oh, that's right. and that's that right. was just like a half hour drive away from where I grew up, okay. um, over the over you know the Santa Cruz mountains. So it was definitely like a barrier, and felt and Santa Cruz is so weird. So it definitely felt like a a different world. And I think that's also you know that was also a big deal to just. Um, I mean, there are so many freaks that go there and live there and and stuff. And so that's what? when I and I had a boyfriend who was an artist, and and that was you know that was kind of a 
big deal too to me. Okay, so you know, I don't think I've ever been to Santa Cruz. It's so weird. It's so the campus is ridiculously beautiful. It's it's up, you know, on this hill, and they've done the architecture. I think it's changed a lot over the years, but at the time, it was you would be walking along these paths, the redwood trees, and they would kind of they integrated all the buildings into the landscape. So you you would just come upon this building that you couldn't see. Like if you drive around the perimeter you can't even see the big buildings. Um, and so, you know, you would take these like idyllic little paths to your classes and, you know, it's, it's really gorgeous. Wow. And like, they don't even have grades there, right? It's like you get like, yeah, I guess a lot of people get grades now, but at the time, yeah, you didn't get grades, but it was more humiliating because you would get this like written, this the paragraph that was like, well, Beth came to, you know, class every day, you know, every, every session, she failed to, you know, whatever, contribute significantly to the dialogue. And and, and it was just like her paper on this was not very interesting. And, you know, and so it was kind of worse if you, if you did that. Like, dude, dude, just give me a C. Just shut the. I know. (laughs) Totally. I mean, I was also like, I started um, working at, at a bakery the year after my, uh, the summer after my first year. And all of a sudden, I was like, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a pastry chef. And so I just started working and learning how to bake. And so my entire college career was spent like, you know, 30 hours a week working as a baker. And and, and so I I could – the good thing was that it was if you weren't really into a class, it was easy to pass it, you know. Um, So I kind of – you know, I had classes that I liked, but I was more into just – I just wanted to get done with college and work and – and I wasn't, you know, I'm not a super academic person. And, and so I, there were, there were things that were great. You know, I took an intro to feminism class with Audrey and Rich, which was amazing. And, you know, it's like things that blew my mind when I was 18. Um, Wait, and the, I the wish po- now, the, the po- is it Adrian or Adrian? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think I used to call her Adrian Rich and then I heard it pronounced Adrian. Okay. Um, no, so, um, I've always said maybe Frenchy, like a little Frenchy pronunciation, Adrian. Okay. Um, Anyway, so, you know, now I wish I had that luxury of just going to college and, and learning things. And, and But at the time, I was just like, oh, okay, got to knock these four years out and get out of here and, you know, go on and live my life. You're probably like the 50th person I've talked to who has said exactly that. I had the exact no, same. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's like very – I think it's very common for people. I mean, that you know, I keep – I say it over and over again, but I think that Americans need to have a gap year. They need to like mm-hmm. when you get done with high school, you need to go travel around the world or work a job somewhere or whatever it is, and just like not be a student for a year and get yourself. Yeah, because I just you know it just felt like oh this oh you know like like it just it's it was just a thing you did where I grew up and in the time that I grew up you know it's like of course you go to college like that's what you, that's what after high school is is right. college and and it's funny because my son who's eleven is like I'm not going to college and and. At first, when he started, he's been saying that since he was like five years old. And and at first, my husband and I were like, oh boy. And then I just kind of thought, you know what? If he doesn't go to college, I I I don't I think it'll be fine. It's not I don't I just you know it, it, maybe he'll figure out later that he wants to do it. But but I realized like wow, that's a totally different mindset from how I grew up. Is you know hearing my son say he doesn't want to go to college and just being like, eh, won't be the end wow. of the world if he doesn't and, go to college. Yeah, you know, I was having a conversation about this very thing maybe this past weekend about how who was I speaking with? I forget. You know, I think it was oh, you know, what I was at a party and I was talking to somebody about this and just 
the debt that students leave with and the fact that these universities are just businesses. They're just, they operate like businesses for profit and they don't care if they're churning out students who have like this obscene debt on their shoulders. expensive i mean yeah, yeah it's it's, it's, absurd. it's absurd it's absurd and I, you know, I don't know what the answer is but like that can't that can't be it whatever the yeah. whatever, whatever the situation is now can't be it so um so you were it sounds like you were i mean like when did you start to really freak out it's i thought like you'd get to santa cruz and i'd hear some wild stories but you were like you know, well honestly... i mean it's not that i wasn't like i, I you know i started drinking i started drinking when i was 21 um the legal age and um and, you know, I mean, I've had some crazy, I've done some crazy shit and like, you know, all the touring that I've done, um, when my first book came out, you know, I got in a, I borrowed my dad's pickup truck and I did, I think I did 40 cities, um, by myself with all the books in the truck, in the back of the truck. And, um, and that was just people that I had met from, uh, the poetry slam in the nineties, you know, who were, and, and so, I mean, I've had like, you know, wild times, but like, I never was out of control. Like I never, I, I never had something where I was like, I'm worried about myself. I think I'm going to, you know, right. I, but, but so what, what happened though is that I, I ended up, I was at an open mic night one night. I, I just was in a bar one night. Um, and this open night, the open mic thing was happening, uh, in San Francisco. And I was like, whoa, this is wild. Like people just get up on the stage and they just do their thing for three minutes, you know, and then they get off the stage and, and you just disappear back into the crowd of the dark bar. And, and, and I was fascinated because I had, I, around the time I was finishing college and baking and, you know, I got this job as a pastry chef in San Francisco and I had to wake up at, you know, three thirty in the morning to go to work. So I remember having this beer at, you know, like eight o'clock and I was like, who's the time for me to turn in? And, and, uh, and I, I, I was just so into it. Like I just loved that you could do that, that you, if you were terrible, it, you know, you were off the stage in a second, didn't matter. I, there was, it was just like a rowdy band of pirates. Like these people, there was a vampire who had, who actually had vampire teeth and, and, uh, you know, drank her boyfriend's blood or he was a, a trans lady. That was the first trans person I ever saw. Um, there were, there was, uh, Michelle T used to be a prostitute. Um, it would write about that. Um, a friend of mine was HIV positive. Well, I, he became my friend from, from the open mic scene. And so I just saw this one night, not having written anything, you know, except for little notes to myself. And I just thought, I'm going to come back here next week and I'm going to read something on the stage. And, and I did, and I just kept doing it and doing it and just, you know, writing new stuff. And it was just kind of rants and, you know, prose pieces and some things that were kind of like poetry. I don't know, you know, and, and, and that's how I started writing was just kind of through that, that scene. Um, so, so I think that that was for me, like my freak out was just like, find was you know the way that I freaked out was just by finding these people and being like I have to be around this, this I is, love this, this is my this is my tribe yeah this you know the suburban girl like writing about like her horrible orthodontist she had when she was so you know it's like <laughs> that's a, and, but somehow I fit in like I I fit in 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 my you know writing about data communities or whatever like it it <laughs> just like you know it's just like that was my weird thing. And and then were you dating women at this po- period of your life? No, I never, I never dated. I never, real, I did, I never dated women. Like I, I only would like be like, maybe I should make out with this lady and see if I'm a, I'm a 
bicycle, bisexual, you know, I was just like, all right. And then I would do it and I'd be all, hmm, like, I don't know, like I was too in my head, you know, and, right. and so then I'd try some, I'd be, man, she's not the right one, you know, and, and so then I would like sleep with some lady and then I'd be like, huh, no. And then, you know, so I just like kept trying and then finally I was like, this is ridiculous. Like I was, I was on tour sister spit and I was in Provincetown of all places and I went home. I was just like, tonight I'm going to decide if I, if I am, you know, just like this person's going to make me decide this like totally butch construction worker who also had a gig at the sex toy store. And I was like, I'm just going to sleep with this named Buzz. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to sleep with this. And I just did. And I was like, oh, boy, I guess I'm not. All right. I'm straight, you guys. So did you, um, did you have, did you feel a sense of social pressure because you were hanging around with so many uh, lesbians? Or well, I felt, I felt more like, I felt more like, why wouldn't a person be bisexual? Like I had a hard time with coming to grips with the fact that like I was an open-minded person. I enjoy pleasure. Like why would I not want to, you know, have sex with both kinds of people or guns? Both See, kinds. Now we'll broaden the spectrum, but um, you know, so so I think that I felt. I mean, there was definitely like a points game in the van for like like people were keeping track of like how many people they would make out with, how many people they would fuck. Like they would, there, it was like this, this competition, um, which was crazy. Um, and, and, uh, and what there were a lot of alcoholics else? in the group back then. Huh? I was going to say, what else are you going to do in the van on like a 12 hour? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, I just, I, I probably did feel some pressure, but just kind of, I put it on myself of just like, how can I not be? Come on. And, uh, yeah, so that was that. Just, you that, know, that, was the, ended, that was the official end. Yeah, I was just like, by dawn this morning, you know, the next morning, I'm going to find out. This is my litmus test. Here we go, you know. And finally, I was just like, all right, never mind. Yeah, well, you know, at least, you've, at least, <laughs> at least, you, at least you know, right? Exactly. Uh, okay, so then, you know, and that's the way that your writing career began. And then you started to, t you, so it was spoken word, open mic nights. And mm -hmm. then, you know, eventually collecting pieces, eventually touring and then collecting pieces. Is that right? Yeah. The, let's see. So I did the, um, yeah, I did the open mic stuff. And then at the time, the Poetry Slam had just started. And it was so funny in San Francisco because there was only a Poetry Slam, I think, in Chicago, Boston, and, um, oh, shoot, like two other cities, New York, and um, somewhere else in the South, I think. And so this this guy, this friend of mine came back from one of these poetry songs. And he's like, we got to start one in San Francisco. It's great. There's so many cool people. And you, so I remember the first time, uh, we did it. It was like, nobody wanted to just give the people scores, you know, they, everybody was like, this is, come on, we can't give, so the, I forget how they decided like who was going to go to the national poetry slam. But, um, but I went to that two years and then, um, and then after that, I, it got really huge, um, and I just, I didn't like, I felt like I can't write these three minute pieces that are just for this. And I didn't like the way that people would just like repeat their stuff all the time. And it kind of became like these pop songs where people were like, if I do this and then I do this and then I bring it down and then I end with the song, you know, like there was just so much clownery in it that I was just like, I can't be a part of this. So that, you know, I, I after that, I went on to mentor teenagers who do the poetry slam and I think it's perfect for teenagers you know it's like a lot of identity stuff and a lot of anger and like I just I love teenagers doing spoken word and poetry but but for adults I was just like okay I gotta stop this so this press in San Francisco um Manic D press um sure yeah Jen Jennifer Joseph 
came to me and said like, Hey, why don't you put together a thing of all your, a collection of all your stuff that you're reading at the open mics. And, and before that book even came out, one of the pieces got picked up by best American poetry and which I tell the story because I find it like inspiring for any, anybody who's trying to be a writer is that I had no idea this thing was a po- even called a poem. You know, it was just, it was written in prose. You know, I, I wrote it for the stage in the bar. Um, you know, like I, I, I mean, I, you know, I wrote it to be read and people are drinking. Like I didn't think of it as a poem at all. And, and so when that happened, before my first book came out and it was like, you know, probably the 10th thing I'd ever written, like complete thing I'd ever written. I was just like, all right, all right. Okay. So there's not really any rules. This is just luck. And, 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 you know, just a little bit of just like kind of, there's no path, you know, you can do it a million different ways. And so, yeah, I mean, and that's what I love. That's what I find inspiring. And, and that to me was a big, like permission giving you know, moment or something where I just thought, wow, all right. So this is, this, I guess I should take this a little more seriously because somebody thought this was, you know, good and, and I'm going to, I'm just going to keep doing it. And, and, um, and so here I am, you know, 20 years later, I'm just kind of keeping, keeping on. Well, you know, it's a couple of things come to mind. First of all, like, I think when you get, when you get encouragement like that, you take it as a sign to keep going. It's huge. It's so huge to get encouragement. Definitely. And then the second thing is that uh, when you said that you had written the thing intending it to be for an audience at a bar and you didn't really even think of it as a poem, but you were, what comes to mind is the word conversational. And, mm-hmm. and, and just the fact that you were, or, or communication is maybe the better word because you were going in there to read this thing and to talk to people that were going to be in the same room with you. And right. I think sometimes there's a formality to prose and a formality to like the written word and like people lose sight of the fact that you have to be communicating with somebody. You know what I'm yeah. Saying? Yeah. I, I think so. And I think I, I, and that's, you know, so huge for me because that is how I started writing, you know, was just for that experience. And, and even when Jennifer came to me to put the book together, I was like, really? I know what a book looks like. I don't think what I'm doing <laughs> belongs in any kind of book, you know, and 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 uh, it just didn't seem natural, you know. Um, and then, but I do think it has, I mean, it's definitely, it's the way I write is just, is very conversational and, and. I'd like to, you know, I like to keep it that way. And, 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 uh, I think that, I don't know, but I love the, I love the experience of just sitting and reading and being just alone with who's ever voice in my head. And, and I think that that's different from, I don't know, like it, it's, you know, somebody who, who maybe stuff doesn't, it wouldn't be as, as great if they were reading it out loud and then you know sometimes there's nothing better than to have you know an author read you something out loud of course but but i just think that i don't know there's there's certain things where it's just meant to be you and sitting there by yourself and in the silence sure well i mean and so when you write i'm thinking to myself like are you are you reading the pieces aloud as you write them and then also how much revision are you doing are these things like kind of come out of you like fast and hot I, I think in the beginning, it was all, all editing was done by reading stuff out loud. So I would write something and I would read it and I'd go, oh, that sounded weird. You know, I would, I would, you know, maybe practice it, read it out loud to myself, but then I would get on stage and read it. And I, I, so anyway, that's, that's how I first started editing was always, always by, um, hearing it out loud. And now even, you know, some of my favorite things are things that I've done over and over again 
in front of an audience. And because I just, I like how that feels to just have something just feel so natural, you know, and, 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 um, I don't know, like I, I don't use a lot of, you know, I don't have a crazy big vocabulary and, and I just, I like to be conversational and, and, um, I think that sometimes the way that I write, I think there's, there's things that I've written that I don't think would sound great out loud. So I don't read them out loud. I just, you know, um, but I do, I do a lot of, at least you know the difference, you know, (laughs) Yeah, I do. I mean, I've, I've, you know, through trial and error for sure. You know, I've read some stuff and been like, Oh, that was a boner piece, you know, but, um, I don't know. I think that, that, there's I, I, do, I do a lot more editing now without because I just don't do as many readings now. Well, so I almost, have to, you know. Well, it almost sounds like a, a comedian's. It's like it's like almost like you're working out a. I mean, not that it's all comedy, <laughs> but you do write humor, and so it's like it reminds yeah. me of something like working out of a set, and mm-hmm. really like paring it down, and it, you know, to the point where like if you're you know watching a, a good comedian perform you know it's right it's, until it's poetry brad until best american poetry <laughs> so that's a poem that lizard um, <laughs> but i don't know just it seems so seamless but it's like you know you watch like a george carlin tape and you're like clearly this oh right yeah and, oh my god yeah it's like pretty masterful so yeah uh, did you i mean have you just basically been able to hop from one publishing experience to the next but through the you know through uh you know, serendipity or doing what you're doing and it's not the opportunities present themselves or did you have to go out and pound the pavement for an agent? And do you ever have like long fallow periods where you were like, this isn't going to happen. I'm super depressed. Like, yeah, I had one. Okay. So I had the book with Jennifer It's called monkey girl. Um, that monkey girl is the first one. And then I did a collection of short stories for her called this two can be yours. And then after that, I was just like, huh, am I going to keep doing this? And, and, um, I was, there was, uh, San Francisco to have the Litquake Literary Festival every year. And it was one of the first years of that. And I was on this marathon reading at the library with, I mean, it started at nine and went till five and everybody had their 10 minutes. And I was at a friend's wedding in, uh, Marin and it was the Blue Angels were doing their, the, their, the military, you know, flight things doing all their, the, the, the traffic was terrible. And I was like, you know what? I don't even want to go to this lit like thing. Like, who cares? Like me doing my 10 minutes in the middle of this day and, and my husband. It's, so do gooder, do gooder. You know, he's like, your name's on the thing. People are expecting you. People might show up at your time slot. Like you need to go. And so we left our friend's wedding. They ended up getting divorced. We left their wedding um, <laughs> and and uh, sat in some horrible traffic and got to the thing. And they were running totally late because everybody was reading too long. And there was a band that was supposed to play in between the people. And and uh, a friend of mine was was uh, the piano player. And they hadn't got a chance to play all day because everybody was just going on too long. So I was like, okay, you guys play. I'm going to read something. And so I just read this like super short piece, like a three minute thing. Um, and with this music and it went over really well. And afterwards, this lady came out of the audience and she's like, hello, my name is Ari Exed and I'm a literary agent from Levine Greenberg in, in New York. And I would like to see what you have going on. And was like that, you know, and, and that was how I got my agent. Like she saw, and it, you know, it makes sense, right? Like she saw me read live, which is kind of the thing that I, how I came to write and how, you know, what I like to do. And, and, um, and so she said, well, what do you want to write? And I had been reading a lot of humorous essays like, um, Dave Sedaris and 
Cerebral and things like that. And so I was like, I want to try and write one of those. Like, I want to try and write a book that's just kind of taking, like, the top, you know, 10 or 12 stories of my life and, and just trying to make them funny and, and in that style, you know, of just my voice of just being like, all right, this is what happened to me. And that's like where I told the suck my dick story and stuff. And so, um, <laughs> one of that, the top, one of the top, that made the top yeah. 12, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I know I somehow I just can't let go of it. Just keep talking about it. Jesus. So, um, anyway, that book did really well. And, and, uh, and I, it's called everybody, everybody into the pool. And, um, it was on the New York times list for a couple of weeks and, and just sold, you know, I, better than anybody thought and and so then I was like oh now what do I do like that was just sort of like let me see if I can do that and and so I think after that I also felt like that was a fluke and that's I I didn't want to keep writing like that like I didn't want to keep I think that you know what people wanted from me was like more funny essays about what it's like to be a woman in these times, you know? And I was just like, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And, um, so I, I don't know, like, I felt like I, you know, I lucked, I lucked out and I lucked out too, because, you know, the publisher on that, everybody into the pool, I was the only person who wanted to publish it. And it was Judith Regan who had Regan books who, you know, is, um, just a wild woman and she she's the one who like really started all that celebrity autobiography thing of just like oh, Jose yeah. Canseco and um, Jenna Jameson and you know that stuff and so you know I got a tiny advance and but she pushed the shit out of it. Okay, and I, I want to pe- stop you because this book was on the New York Times bestseller list. It had it, it sold better than anyone anticipated. Only one publisher wanted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said I heard you use the word fluke earlier. Like, you know, yeah. but at the same time, you said Judith Regan really pushed it. So, like, do you have a sense of why it worked? Do you have? I I mean, I think okay. One reason I think it worked is because she she pushed it. Now that I think I've, a fluke, I think because she all her. All her real money is going into the Nicole Richie. I remember the Nicole Richie um, autobiography came out around the same time, and my my publicist was like flying to do her cover photo shoot with her, and I was like, "Whoa!" I had to pay my friend a hundred bucks to take my autograph. <laughs> you know, right. like it's just like it, it, it's just so. So I think part of it was that it was her. You know, like it was people were interested in what she was doing at that time, and so people were paying attention to what she was putting out or something. And, you know, like they did those big posters on the construction sites where they have those giant, like wheat pasted posters. And, and they, um, they, they, they got, they hired a radio person that got me a bunch of good radio stuff. And, and, um, but, but that kind of happened after, I can't remember the order now. Like, I feel like, like a lot of the, um, the interviews and all that stuff, came out afterwards, like came out after it had hit the, you know, when it was on the list and then they started putting money into it, I think. Um, I don't know, but it's so weird. And then, you know, she, that, she stopped that her, I don't know what she's doing now, but she doesn't have that imprint anymore. It was at HarperCollins. Well, no, like she, um, I think after the OJ book, things went south and then now I, I want to say she's in Los Angeles, but I could be wrong. I think Reagan Books is in Los Angeles, but okay, just so she has proximity to all the people she's 
Right. <laughs> but it was so funny because, like, for my book party, I just got it. They gave me a bunch of free books. And so I just had people, like, reading from, like, the Jose Canseco book and the Jenna Jameson book and, and all that. So it was pretty fun. And so, okay, and so now you're in Brooklyn and you've got this new book. And, like, what precipitated the move to Brooklyn? Um, my husband is a recording engineer. And so he he'd been wanting to move from the Bay area for a while. And he, uh, a friend of his is building a recording studio in Brooklyn. And he said, you know, if you could work in my studio that I'm building and you can live in this apartment that's in the same building. And so it was sort of like all those big New York questions that feel very like, Oh my God, where are we going to work? Where are we going to live? It was like, Oh, we'll live here and you'll work there. And, um, so yeah, so we did it. And, and it, I mean, it feels great to know that I, I just kind of thought like, Oh, I've got my kid in a good school, like here in Berkeley, California. Like, how am I ever, you know, I can't leave. And then we did. And it feels great. That's cool. Well, it's been really fun talking with you. Yeah. And, yeah. You too. And I love your show. And yeah, it's just, I'm going through the whole back catalog now. Oh, well, thank you. And congr- yeah. congratulations on the new book and best of luck with, uh, whatever comes next. All right. Thanks, man. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's it. That's Beth Lissick. Her book, once again, is called Yokohama Three-Way and Other Small Shames. It is due out from City Lights very soon on September 24th, 2013. You can pre-order it today if you'd like, and uh, I would encourage that. You can find Beth online at BethLissick.com. She's on Twitter where her handle is at BLissick, and she's also on the Facebook. Thanks to our sponsors, once again, Squarespace. Be sure to go check out Squarespace.com. For all your website needs, if you enter the promo code OTHER8, you get 10% off. It's a great deal. It's a great service. You need to do this. You need to get a website. You need to improve your website if you have one already. Your website is terrible. Fix that thing up. And if you don't have a website, what are you doing with your life? Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's the official app of this program. It is the best and most elegant and most attractive way to listen to this show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite uh, your favorite special episodes. And you can access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done it already. The app itself is free. Okay, Uh, and you know what? Maybe I will read My Struggle, the book by uh, Carl Ove Nosgaard. And uh, while I'm thinking of it, maybe I should retitle this podcast My Struggle. Like, wouldn't it be funny if an artist produced, like, hundreds of paintings or dozens of novels over a lifetime, and every single one of them was simply titled My Struggle? Am I the only one who finds that prospect funny? Please remember that no single book or manuscript is listed among Shakespeare's possessions in his will and that T.S. Eliot and Groucho Marx were pen pals. That is it for now. Thanks again to Beth Lissick. Go get her book. Thanks to you guys for listening. I will be back in just a few days on Sunday uh, with another episode, another program, another piece of high-quality content just for you. So thank you for uh, bearing witness to my struggle. This is my struggle. Do you realize that? I am externalizing my struggle. (laughs) 